Well, this morning's reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it says this, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not disrespect, be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. 
Well, then, we're going to have a look at that passage. Before we do, a few things to mention. Those things are question time, which I'm sure you'll be expecting. The sermon outline, which I'm sure you've all got. And then, most importantly, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this passage, why might we have an eternal perspective? Might we have the desires that you have? Might our minds conform to your minds? Amen. At the end of verse 5, we read of those who have followed a particular path because they have imagined that godliness is a means of gain. This raises the question, is godliness a means of gain? And if it is, how is godliness a means of gain? Now initially, what 1 Timothy 6 has in mind as gain refers to money. It seems that those who desire to be rich I've realised there's a way to make money through teaching godliness. But straight away we have a problem. The person who wishes to teach godliness, but is driven by money, will feel free to adapt in order to take full advantage of the money he can earn. Not motivated by teaching that which leads to godliness but rather teaching godliness in order to make money, there's no good reason to remain fixed to the truth, but rather they'll teach whatever brings most gain. Now this helps to explain why these teachers that have left the gospel don't leave altogether, but rather they've remained And Paul warns Timothy in verse 3 of people who teach a different doctrine. They have left behind the gospel, but continue to teach, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Though they've left the teaching of Jesus behind, they refuse to leave their roles in the church, but continue in their controversy and disruption because they want to make money. Now Paul has already referenced these problems when he gave the qualifications of elders back in chapter 3. So particularly, we've got these qualifications of being able to teach, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. We can also add chapter 3 verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. He must, uh, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? These people that Paul wants Timothy to be aware of aren't able to teach. And as far as they teach, that's that which is not healthy, the teaching of Christ i.e. the gospel, but rather they're teaching unhealthy controversies. They're quarrelsome, they quarrel about words. 
we've already considered how the motivation is driven by money. But also we have this idea that they are a constant friction among people found in chapter 6 verse 5. What this refers to is instead of managing the church well and caring for God's people, the controversy they teach is a constant irritation to the church causing constant hostility between those who side with these teachers and those who remain holding on to the truth. So those who desire to be rich are a real problem for the church in Ephesus. But before this, they're a danger to themselves. Have a look at nine verse, uh, chapter 6, 9 and 10. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The desire for wealth plunges people into ruin and destruction. To desire riches is to inflict a wound upon yourself. And since it leads to wandering away from the truth, and given the word choices here, we can conclude this sort of ruin is final. But Paul has set all this in contrast to the alternative, contentment. So if we read from the end of verse 5, it says, Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Godliness is great gain. And Paul attacks those who would use godliness to become rich. And introduces that true godliness, which includes contentment. And this is of greater worth than wealth. Contentment and godliness is about being happy when we have the minimum. Food to nourish us, clothes to keep us warm. That's all we need. If we are content with that, then we aren't chasing after riches. Riches that we didn't come into the world with, and when our 80 or 90 years are up, won't amount to anything anyway. The desire to be rich compromises our place in eternity. Whereas godliness with contentment keeps our place in eternity secure. When the commentator Mounts writes about the loss of money, he says, those who have followed its path 
to abandon the Christian faith and have, as it were, used the sword of greed to pierce their hearts with many pains. Why would anyone want to be rich? Ultimately, a desire for money betrays what we value. To value money at the expense of eternal life is an odd choice. Given money is temporary, and to love it is at the cost of eternity. Now having finished what he has to say about the opponents, Paul now addresses Timothy. He begins in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. It's an interesting approach. Would we expect someone who is attributed as being the man of God... needing then to be told to flee all these things, all the things that have been outlined in Paul's letter to Timothy. I wonder whether we need to consider how we think about the term man of God. Some lofty biblical characters have been addressed as man of God. Is it then hard to hear Paul address the term to the young Timothy? particularly when he then feels obliged to follow it up with, flee from the desires of riches and the temptation to leave the truth behind. Yet, do what do we think? Do we think of the title Man of God to be a title that would create pride in the one given it? Well, that doesn't sit well. The attribute that an authentic man of God would show would be humility and a dependence upon God. Otherwise, he couldn't be a man of God. The man of God wouldn't think himself above the warning given here to Timothy. He would appreciate the danger of temptations, the reality of falling away, be grateful for the reminder. Even on that occasion that a warning or maybe a rebuke missed the mark, maybe even it was totally inappropriate. Better for the man of God to take it seriously. Unless he'd be too puffed up to hear the words that one day might prevent him from losing the eternal life to which he was called. After all, that's what's at stake. The man of God who's too proud to hear the warning to flee those things that would cause him to fall away is not a man of God. And so Paul encourages Timothy to persevere in the confession he has made. He gives Jesus an example of the one who persevered unto death. And then finally, Paul finishes with a doxology, which in itself is further encouragement to persevere. It begins in verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. Whatever Timothy has to face, and whatever antagonism he must undergo, as he continues to work with the troubles at Ephesus, Timothy serves the God who's all-powerful and transcends over everything. Ultimately, Timothy can take comfort in the fact that God is in control of the Ephesian church. And this, Timothy can be sure of. Now, in one sense, the letter of 1 Timothy spent a lot of time addressing the overseers of the church, outlining to Timothy how he should help the church choose their overseers, help those in need of hope, rebuking false teachers, and exploring the motivation behind such false teaching in order for the true man of God to flee where others have fallen. But this doesn't mean we all cannot learn something from the book of 1 Timothy. Not just how we should appoint leaders to the church, but the same warnings that are given to the leaders, we can take on board as well. We all, like Timothy, can flee from these things described in Paul's letters. We can be careful to learn contentment with godliness so that our concern would not be a desire for riches, but content with food and clothing. As Paul finishes the letter, in verse 17, there will be some who are rich. He says of them here, As for the rich, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Let's do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Notice these are of a different category to what we discussed earlier. They desired to be rich and taught and were motivated by achieving their goal of wealth. These others simply are already rich. And so for them, Paul says, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, upon which the hope is not uncertain. After all, he's the one who provides everything, including riches. With their wealth, they can be generous, By doing so, they will store treasures up in heaven. And whatever else the book of 1 Timothy is about, there's an eschatological thrust throughout. Whether it's the future hope of the church that's in danger of being compromised by the false teachers, or the false teachers that have compromised the gain of godliness with contentment, for the desire to be rich. Or the warning to persevere so as not to lose out on the eternal life in which we've been called. 
1 Timothy reminds us to have an eternal focus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many warnings that we've read here in 1 Timothy. And we pray, Lord, like Timothy, we would flee from these things, that we would pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love and steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which we made the good confession. We pray, Lord, that our focus will be on the treasures that are ours in heaven. And in our generosity, we continue to store those up. That we will provide a good foundation for the future and take hold of that which is truly life. Amen. Well, there you go. That's the end of 1 Timothy 6. Or the end of 1 Timothy. Um, any thoughts, comments, or questions? Yes, good question. Now, I happen to, perchance, come across a comment in passing in the commentary, which may help me here. So, interestingly, yeah, so I think... A suggestion was made by someone that there's a military aspect to this. Um, but I think Mounts was, wasn't happy to go down that route um, because of precisely that, that aggressive side of, and obviously the trauma encapsulated in the military side of, of things. So he explored more of an athletic and more of a kind of a wrestle, I guess, type thing. So instead of a, a military attack, I think he was thinking in terms of a, like a constant wrestle, if you like. So, I mean, if that's all well and good, I mean, I don't know, because I kind of feel a little bit like, well, even if you do run with the military, I think the point still stands, because it isn't intended to be, you know, this is what how metaphors or, or things work isn't it? it's not meant to be a one for one so if the idea is just continue on finish the race don't give up on the wrestle you know continue in the battle um, see it to the end I think there the th that's the sort of sentiment we're supposed to take from the language as opposed to destroy the enemy it, it, I think that's the pick, bit that's been picking up given the context so if it's a there's a end in sight, there's a goal ahead of us keep on for that goal in the context of military battle you know, get to the end of the battle so sorry? Yeah, it's, it's more kind of... Yeah, definitely. I think particularly in terms of the sort of pursuing righteousness and continuing on in those things. So it's more about reaching the goal and less about, yeah, the aggression of a military battle. I think that's helpful. 
Any other questions? Fair enough. Again, it's one of those ones where it's not, not like everyone's not looking up as if to say, oh, let's move on. Everyone's looking down as if to say, I think I might have something here. I'm not sure. I hope it doesn't move on before I'm ready. <laughs> Adrian? Oh, dear. I don't know. Have we got something else to say? I want to Yeah, um, contentment. Have I got anything else to say about contentment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think I think it probably is something that is interesting and would would um, serve well for further thought. Um, and I think. As Adrian suggests, society is not content. And I guess particularly when we... I don't know whether you remember when we did that liquid in modernity stuff in one of the growth groups. Probably not. But the idea there is... And particularly thinking in terms of shopping, the idea is, is what's the next purchase? You know, I've got my mobile phone, but it's about to get to the end of its life, at which point, which is the one that I'll get to replace it. And... Um, or I've got this fashion style, but what's the next thing that I'm going to do to shake that up a little bit? And, and you, it's always sort of moving forward and re-changing um, our image and redesigning ourselves or, or, or whatever the case. So I think there it's always what can I have? How can I change? What's the next thing? Whereas... Contentment is quite powerful because it provides us with the position of actually the external situation we find ourselves in doesn't matter because whatever lot we find ourselves in is where we are content. I think more from a sort of like a practical sense, there's also that thing of being aware of where we're at at the moment. So, I don't know, you know, the single person who wants to be married or the um, couple who have yet to have a baby or the, the family who've got the babies and are looking forward to the children leaving um, or whatever it might be. You can be... Um, the thing is, is, this is the situation you'll find yourself in. Enjoy what you're experiencing now. Don't look to the future for some change but actually be content in what you're experiencing now and you know enjoy that which you're experiencing don't think down on what's happening now for the sake of the other so to be content in whatever experience that we have is going to be quite powerful for us 
And then also, I guess the other thing is that this contentment is very theological because the contentment um, is a contentment in God's world knowing that he provides all the things that we need and it's in anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth where we'll experience um, the eternal life that we're looking forward to. So I think contentment has to be understood in that context. So, yeah, interesting question. I didn't know I had much to say about contentment, but it appears I do. <laughs> I don't know, hopefully that whets your appetite. Uh, one more, if there's one desperate to be squeezed in. Nope. Okay, we'll leave it there. <laughs>